This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where Democrats in the Florida House of Representatives are calling for a special session to address several issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today is the day the governor's task force on reopening the state is supposed to come up with the first phase of a plan to get Florida back to work and back in business after the lockdown. But it looks like the work will continue over the weekend. When the coronavirus crisis began, hospitals were ordered to cancel elective surgeries to make room for COVID-19 victims. But the governor says it's almost time to reopen hospitals and surgery centers. Could happen in a couple of weeks. Losses continue to pile up in Florida agriculture, the second largest industry in the state. About the only good thing to come out of all this is that the people are drinking more orange juice and the plants that make toilet paper are working around the clock. Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas jumps on the anti-China bandwagon. He's asking the U.S. State Department to help him figure out if any of the $2 billion worth of assets in Florida's unclaimed property account are owned or controlled by the Chinese government. On the Sunrise interview, we talk with Glenn Burhans, the man behind the all-voters vote amendment. It's going to be on the ballot in November, but Burhans objects to the price tag that was slapped on his amendment by the state. So he's suing. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with a brand new Florida man with a fistful of Super Bowl rings who seems to be having trouble adjusting to life in the Sunshine State. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Friday, April 24th. Florida nears a sad milestone. The number of COVID-19 fatalities hit 987 last night and will exceed the 1,000 mark today. 60 Floridians succumbed over the past 24 hours, which ties the record for the second highest number of deaths in a single day. The number of confirmed cases of coronavirus is closing in on 3,000. There's a very good chance we'll pass that later today. Democratic leaders in the Florida House are calling for a special session dealing with the coronavirus. Representatives Evan Jenny of Dania Beach and Bobby DuBose of Fort Lauderdale wrote the governor Thursday asking for a special session to take up three issues, unemployment, Medicaid expansion, elections. Democrats have called for expansion of unemployment benefits, increased access to Medicaid, and a new law making it easier to vote by mail so people don't have to leave home to cast a ballot. The governor has expressed reluctance in the past when asked about a special session, but he may not have a choice. The pandemic has blown a hole in the budget. They may have to return to the Capitol just to balance the books. When the governor declared a state of emergency for coronavirus, he ordered hospitals to postpone any surgeries that were not absolutely necessary in order to free up beds for coronavirus patients and preserve the limited supply of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. But Ron DeSantis now says the curve is being flattened, so the hospitals need to prepare for the return of elective surgery. For the healthcare industry, you know, obviously we need to get these, these quote, elective procedures back online. Um, you know, this, a lot of these things are not just, uh, people think like it's just like cosmetic surgery. I mean, obviously it would include that, but these are things that really matter to people. Um, and so we've delayed that uh, at the request of, of, of the, you know, some, a lot of these health experts. Uh, I worry we go a lot much longer than what I've already done, and I think you could start seeing some some negative impacts, and we want to mitigate this. Agency for Healthcare Administration Secretary Mary Mayhew says the key to reopening hospitals to non-COVID-19 patients is personal protective gear. She says they have to maintain adequate reserves of masks, gowns, gloves, and booties to ensure the protection of doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. What we have to remain vigilant around is the use of PPE and that that remains uh, the safest way to protect the spread, the wearing of masks. So as we begin to look at ways to support timely access for patients to uh, receive care uh, in our hospitals, we, we need to focus on our PPE supply chains. And while you all uh, saw regularly in the 24-7 media coverage 
how disrupted our supply chains have been. Uh, there is some light at the end of the tunnel as we begin to see those supply chains pick back up uh, as hospitals are able to rely more on their uh, group purchasing and their um, uh, commercial supply chains. That is seeing a, a dramatic uh, increase in the availability of PPE, but that is an area that we will need to remain incredibly focused on. And there also needs to be an adequacy across the continuum of care of PPE. So not just uh, within our hospitals, but consider as hospitals need to discharge uh, individuals either back to their skilled nursing facility or their assisted living facility or for home care services. Those uh, staff must have access uh, to appropriate PPE as well. The CEO of Tampa General Hospital, John Coors, believes hospitals and ambulatory surgical centers should reopen for regular business in about two weeks. But he also warns that that could result in more cases of COVID-19 and they need to be ready. The executive order is set to expire um, May 8th. I believe that the executive order should not change. It should expire on May 8th. Hospitals should go back to resuming elective surgery and procedures on May 9th. The reason we don't want to do it earlier is we want to give hospitals the opportunity to get their systems, their processes, their PPE, their training in place for what I would call a new normal in our industry. The next couple of weeks will afford us the opportunity to do that. I recognize there are probably hospitals in the state of Florida today that say we can do it now. But this isn't about the individual. This is about the state. This is about safeguarding the health and wellness of the people in this state. And that's why we should keep the executive order in place. It expires May 8th. We start, we start operating on May 9th and we do it in a safe and thoughtful way. Another item is that hospitals need to anticipate what I would call a potential second wave or a potential bump in cases as we ease restrictions and start to methodically open up the economy, which, by the way, the governor has been telling us from the very beginning. We want to do it methodically and thoughtfully, and we want to make sure we safeguard the health, wellness, and safety of every Floridian. But as we begin to do that, there potentially could be a bump in cases. Hospitals need to make sure we have the bed capacity, the ICU capacity, and the ventilator capacity in reserve to be able to effectively and proactively deal with that potential bump in volume for COVID-19. Hospitals have suffered significant financial pressure during the pandemic because the cost of supplies has skyrocketed and their actual revenues are down between 20 and 40 percent. The COVID-19 crisis has done major damage to Florida's agriculture industry. The losses are piling up. Mike Joyner with the Florida Fruit and Vegetable Association says millions of pounds of fresh veggies are rotting in the field because demand has all but vanished and it's cheaper to plow the stuff under. Estimated crop losses just for specialty crops to date, and we do hope this gets better. Uh, we're tracking it very closely, but to date we estimate that there's been about a $522 million impact. Mostly that comes from lack of demand. I mean, you think about price, you think about demand. 
the majority of this this has just come from there's no demand out there right now for these products or little demand. Florida dairy farmers have dumped tons of milk and they've lost more than $70 million. Alan Shelby with the Florida Forestry Association says they're busy making toilet paper, but the sawmills are idle for a reason that really has nothing to do with the virus. Our pulp mills are, are running at full speed, uh, trying to supply the tissue paper and packaging uh, increases that are, that are badly needed at this time. We do have one segment and that's, uh, uh, that's our lumber industry, our sawmill uh, sector. Uh, is really flat on its back at this time, uh, primarily due to housing uh, and market uncertainty. You know, long-term recovery from our perspective um, really focuses around uh, housing starts and, and, and stimulating that housing market going forward. Most of the timber industry is in northwest Florida, and they're still trying to recover from the damage done by Hurricane Michael. But there is one bright spot in Florida's agriculture industry. Florida Citrus Mutual's Matt Joyner says OJ is back. You know, we've seen an increase in retail as a result of the, the nutritional benefits, the healthful benefits of orange juice and consumers being reminded of that. But we certainly have a, a tremendous amount of our volume that also goes to food service, school lunches, that sort of thing. And, and so while we have seen a, an increased retail, we have, we've seen that food service sector of our business completely fall off. And, and so we, we think that we'll be treading water. Uh, nonetheless, we're, we're extremely happy to see, again, uh, orange juice front and center top of consumers' minds at, at this time. We've got about five weeks left to go or so in, in harvesting, getting our fruit to the processors. Labor continues to be a critical issue for us, as, as well as trucking and, and our processing facilities. And so we're taking every precaution to make sure that uh, that, that the safety and health of our workers, uh, both in the processing plants and in the field, is, is front and center. State Senator Wilton Simpson, who owns a large chicken egg farm in Trilby, says Florida's economic recovery depends on a strong agriculture industry. Agriculture is currently the uh, leading economic driver of the state with over $160 billion a year in activity. And, and obviously all of us need to eat and we need to make sure that we continue to strive to have the uh, best opportunities for agriculture to get their products into the marketplaces to where people can get to them. And, and obviously while we're taking care of the most needy. By the way, Publix is stepping up to help deal with all that food that would otherwise go to waste. The company says it will purchase Florida-grown produce and send it directly to Feeding America food banks across the southeast. In the midst of the pandemic, Governor DeSantis has followed the president's lead by criticizing China, accusing the communist leadership of concealing the severity of the outbreak until it was too late to contain it. Now Florida's chief financial officer has joined in the China bashing. Jimmy Petronas has written to U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo asking the feds to help identify any assets in Florida's $2 billion unclaimed property account that may be owned or controlled by the Chinese government. Now, Petronas isn't saying he'll try to seize any of those assets, and there is no national policy to recoup Chinese assets. But Petronas says this will give more information to the president and congressional leaders who continue to debate possible penalties on China for the suppression of information about coronavirus. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we'll talk with Glenn Burhans, the man behind Amendment 3, commonly known as All Voters Vote. He's filed a lawsuit challenging the financial impact statement the state added to Amendment 3. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. 
Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is Glenn Burhans, chairman of the All Voters Vote Campaign. His group collected the signatures to get Amendment 3 on the November ballot, but he has a serious problem with the price tag that was added to his amendment by the state's Financial Impact Estimating Conference. Welcome back to the podcast, Glenn, and why don't we start off by explaining the purpose of Amendment 3. The intent of the All Voters Vote Amendment is to allow all registered Florida voters to vote in primaries for state legislature, governor, and cabinet, regardless of their party affiliation. So it will get rid of the current closed party primaries, which now exclude nearly 3.7 million voters. And it's been approved for the ballot by the Florida Supreme Court, but there's that financial impact statement that's on there. And uh, tell me what you're doing as far as a lawsuit and what, what the purpose is. Certainly. So every proposed amendment that goes to the ballot has to have a financial impact statement, and that's prepared by a, a joint conference of the legislature. And it is supposed to advise voters of the potential financial impact on state and local government of implementing the proposed amendments. It's designed to inform voters, what's this going to cost or what's this going to save us in terms of of tax dollars or um, revenues? So that's what the financial impact statement is supposed to do. And that statement appears on the ballot right after the proposed uh, amendment language. So when a voter looks at their ballot, they'll see the ballot title and the summary of all voters vote describing what it does. And then right below that is the financial impact statement. Now, the problem arises where, as in this case, the financial impact statement is misleading to voters. So um, much like a proposed amendment has to undergo uh, court review for um, clarity to make sure that it is not misleading to voters, um, so too the FIS, the financial impact statement, has to have that same type of analysis. Now, it's not mandatory that... um, you know, we file this challenge, um, but we're forced to do it because whereas the Florida Supreme Court previously would automatically review financial impact statements, um, late last year, they determined that they did not have jurisdiction to review the financial impact statement. And they suggested in their opinion that if that review is to be undertaken, it can be done by a circuit court. So that's where we are now. Okay. So what exactly is the problem with the financial impact statement that was prepared by the state? Well, it's ambiguous and it's misleading in a few ways. For example, the the very first sentence of the impact statement says that it is probable that there could be an increase in cost. But the body of of the statement says that it will have a definitive impact of 5.2 to 5.8 million dollars over over each of the next few cycles. Um, and then at the, at the very last sentence, it says uh, that there will be a definite impact. So voters are not sure if it's, it's possible there will be an impact or there definitely will be an impact. The other problem though, and this is really, um, I think more important for voters to understand and, and which makes that statement truly misleading is, is that the statement states that these costs will be spread across counties and you don't know which counties might experience some cost increase just says across counties and the problem is when you look at what the financial impact estimating conference did is they did a survey of 
all of the counties uh, to get a sense as to what might be the financial impact on all 67 counties. They, they did a survey of the supervisors of elections. And first of all, only 33 county supervisors responded. Um, and of those, only 15 suggested that they might see financial um, impact in the form of increased costs. Six of those um, respondents stated that um, we don't expect any cost increase and we might even experience some cost savings. And then the remainder said, well, we're not really sure what impact, if any, there will be. So you've got uh, a methodology where the, the conference did this survey, got very limited responses, but somehow extrapolated millions of dollars of cost and attributed them to counties that expressly told the conference, hey, we're not going to see any increase. And you know what? We might even see a decrease. So when you consider that in the light of the language of the, of the uh, summary that's going to go on the ballot, it's misleading to voters because it's suggesting, number one, it's suggesting a, a broad financial impact, which there may not be. It neglects to tell voters that there could be cost savings that would offset these increases. And it doesn't tell you which counties um, these effects may or may not occur. And that's important because I think, you know, the reasonable voter is going to be concerned with what's happening in my county. Um, if they're afraid that this is going to increase costs in their county, they may not vote for it. But if they understand that their county is not going to be impacted or their county might experience a cost savings, well, that may tip the balance in favor of them supporting the amendment. Do you suspect that there was any political intent in the economic statement or was it maybe more just like economists covering all their bases by taking, you know, taking contradictory stands in the same statement? Well, I'm not a mind reader, Rick, so I'm not going to ascribe any, any ill intent, but I will tell you, I've, I've done enough of these amendments over the years and I've, I've reviewed enough financial impact statements over the years to know that um, the vast majority of time, the statement is very anodyne. It says, you know, the impacts cannot be determined at this time. Um, it seems to me that there was quite a contortion um, to put out a dollar amount that would scare voters from supporting this amendment. And what is it you're asking the court to do? Well, very simply, under the governing statute, it requires that if the court finds that the statement is misleading, that it remand uh, back to the conference for drafting. And then the, the conference has 15 days to come up with a draft that complies with the law. You've been listening to Glenn Burhans, chairman of the All Voters Vote Campaign. Your political calendar of events begins with the Board of Psychology meeting by conference call at 8. The Board of Speech, Language, Pathology, and Audiology holds a conference call at 9. The Board of Opticianry meets by conference call at 9. The Council of Presidents of the Florida College System holds a teleconference at 10. Qualifying ends at noon in this year's congressional and judicial races. State Representative Adam Hattersley of Riverview and Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed hold an online town hall about the impact of COVID-19 on Florida's agriculture industry. That's at 3.30. And State Representative Randy Fine will join with FarmShare to host a free food distribution event Saturday from 10 till noon at Fine's district office in Palm Bay. Finally, it's time once again for the new adventures of Florida Man, who can read defenses but not addresses. 
Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback Tom Brady, who spent the past 20 years in New England, was kicked out of a city park in downtown Tampa earlier this week because he was violating the city's stay-at-home order. Earlier this month, TMZ says Brady walked into a stranger's house by mistake. He was visiting the home of the Bucks' offensive coordinator to pick up some materials, but accidentally walked into the house next door, which looked pretty much the same. Brady realized he was in the wrong place when he came face-to-face with the mystified homeowner who just looked at him and said, Who are you? Brady sent out a tweet saying, trespassing in parks, breaking and entering, just making myself at home in Tampa Bay. Sounds like he's one of us now. That's it for today's installment of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again Monday as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.